Thank you, Pastor Mike, for leading us in prayer. There's so many things to bring to the Lord right now. And kind of what led to the message for today, where I've stepped aside from our study in Leviticus, just because I know that my heart was burdened as, as I've been watching the news lately. And... Um, it just seems that conflict continues to grow in more places in the world, and concerns rise. And even amongst those, you know, in our church family, are people going through difficult times. We um, seem to be gaining popularity in the hospitals in the area, and uh, that's not necessarily a good thing to have them be so familiar with us. Um, and so we just need to contemplate once in a while. We need to deal with straight on this question this question that you have heard one way or another, or perhaps asked yourself, if God is all-powerful and all-good or all-loving, why does He allow so much evil, pain, and suffering, and death in this world? Sometimes the question is used as an attempt to maybe kind of stump a Christian in a a conversation with what appears to be an unanswerable paradox. But for many people who have witnessed real suffering, real difficulty, real pain in their lives, or in the lives of people very close to them, or have seen death up close, it is a genuine conundrum. It is a real struggle. What is even more difficult is the unspeakable cruelty, the absolute evil that we see some people inflict upon others. It confounds us to imagine how anyone would treat even an animal this way, much less another human being. How can God allow these things to happen? So how do we deal with this problem? We believe that God is entirely good. The Bible tells us that. So why does He allow such terrible things to happen or to exist? I don't know, maybe you've experienced trouble or seen things that have actually shaken your faith on this question. Maybe someone close to you has. Or maybe you are confronted by that question by someone else. You, your faith is secure and yet someone asks you this question, do you have a way to answer the person who confronts you with that? It is such a large topic And it's certainly not new. I've been in conversations where someone presented that as though they were being clever. Like, here's a stumper for you. And I want to say, this is a question that's been asked for thousands of years. This is not new. There are books upon books upon books upon books that have been written over centuries dealing specifically with this question. So, of course, I cannot deal comprehensively with it. I cannot answer everything to everyone's satisfaction in one brief message this morning. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't address it, at least at a cursory level, because it seems to be something important and on our minds, I think, many of us at this time. There have been uh, writers in recent decades and over the last hundred or more years who have been open skeptics and critics to the Bible, to Christianity, who have particularly focused on this. David Hume, H.D. Wells, Bertrand Russell, Richard Dawkins have all addressed this and used this as kind of the knife that they like to twist that they believe is going to undo Christianity and the claims of the Bible. They have observed 
moral and natural evil in the world. When we talk about moral evil, we talk about the things that people choose to do that are harmful. Natural evil, we talk about those things like earthquakes and, and uh, hurricanes and typhoons and wildfires and things like that, that that bring great harm and difficulty in people's lives and that kill many people. And so observing these moral and natural evils in the world, these authors have declared that the God of the Bible does not exist. They just say he does not exist. Their primary argument is that pain, suffering, death, and all forms of evil can be observed throughout really all of human history and all over the world. So evil is a reality. Pain, suffering, death, these are realities. They're undeniable. There are those who attempt to deny them. There are those in some... uh, Uh, New Age movements and some Eastern mystic religions who try to say, oh, pain is just an illusion. All of these things are just illusions. That was was Gautama Buddha's, Siddhartha's uh, uh, attempt at dealing with the pain and suffering that he saw in this world. He decided, we we just need to understand that it's it's pretty much an illusion or, or maybe we just need to adjust our expectations. I'm paraphrasing, of course, but basically he said, if you have no desires, you can't be disappointed. So you should just elevate yourself to the stage of not caring about what happens to you or what you do or don't have or what you see around you because it's all just material and we're going to elevate ourselves to a more of a spiritual level. That was his way of dealing with it. But for the vast majority of people, these things do not satisfy. They see the reality. They feel the reality of evil in this world. So they'll say, number one, pain, suffering, death, and all forms of evil can be observed. Number two, if there were a God who is all good and all powerful, there could not be such evil in the world. So either, sub-conclusion, A, he is willing to stop evil but unable. Therefore, he's not all powerful. Or B, he is able to stop evil, but unwilling, therefore not all good. This is the conclusion, therefore, there is no God, or at least not one who deserves to be worshipped. How do we respond to that? It sounds logical. What can we say? Well, I'm going to only offer up to you a series of, of thoughts that I think may help us to begin to deal with this and may help us to address these things. People come each with their own little bit of different experience and perspective and what they're attempting to say. And by the way, if you want notes, I don't have a sheet to hand out, but we have sheets available. So um, Lee, if you just wave your hand, if you just want a piece of paper to write on because you want to take some notes down and don't have something handy, Lee will bring you just a little half sheet of blank paper and you can and you can write on that, all right? Um, So just wave your hand. Um, I will try to be clear in what I say, but I spent more time reading this week than doing PowerPoints and outlines and things like that, so I just ran out of time. Well, first of all, here's here's a response, a beginning of one. When people call these things, the people who deny the existence of God, and, and I'm becoming, admittedly, a little bit argumentative right now, okay? This is for the sake of the argument, not for the sake of conflict, all right? 
for the sake of the argument, as, as in the logic. Okay? The people who use this question to say, therefore, there's no God, there's evil, therefore, there's no God. Well, if you're standing on this premise that there is no God, I have to wonder, how can you call anything evil? Evil is a moral judgment. And so, therefore, if, if there is no ultimate source, no infinite standard of good that is our reference point, then how can you say any of the things that anyone does to someone else or any of these things is evil? You can't have evil unless you have an ultimate good that is offended by these things. So I question the argument on that basis to begin with. But that's not sufficient alone. Ronald Rhodes, um, a philosopher, addressed this and said, the reality of evil actually requires the existence of God rather than disproves it. If you're going to acknowledge that things are evil, then there must be a God who gives you some sense of what is good in contrast. And why is this evil? Because it's an offense against some good standard. But secondly, I want to bring this up. And so these are all just kind of loose points, right? It's not a very good outline. It's just kind of thoughts. God did not create evil. People will say, well, you know, if he's a good God, then why would he make evil? Why would he bring these things about? Well, God did not create evil. He only made it possible by giving humanity free will. That is the capacity to make a moral choice to either love and obey God or to distrust and disobey him. So God did not institute evil. He simply allowed his creatures, humans, to have a moral free will, the ability to choose. So it is actually humankind who brought evil into the world by making the choice to disobey God. You know the scenario, Adam and Eve, God put the test before them. And so even just had a conversation this week where the question, you know, kind of came up. Well, the, you've, got these, you've got these trees, this test in the, in the garden. And I've heard this question more than once, many, many times. Right? Well, why did, why did God do that? Why did he put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil there? Well, it's because God wanted people to have a choice. Now, keep in mind, what he made to begin with was perfect. Even the, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil wasn't itself evil. It was really just a kind of a litmus test. It was a, it was a, a moral turning point, a, a watershed. It was an opportunity. Okay? But we, we see in Genesis 1.31 that at the completion of creation, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was what? Very good. It's very good. And I'll just leave off the other part. That's the summary of the, of the creation statement. But that's that moral statement in particular that God made when he looked at all of that. This is his evaluation. It's very good. Now, truly, if he had already installed evil in the world, if there was already suffering and death, then he wouldn't be a good God to look at that and say, well, that's all good. 
So he's completed creation. By the way, all the way through the completion, this follows the statement about he made man and woman. And it says it's very good. This is a little bit of a sidetrack, but it's a little bit important as well for us to understand because unless we understand God's created order that he made this world by speaking it into being instantaneously as it's recorded in the first chapters of Genesis 1 and 2, all the way up through the completion of man being present, and then he calls it all good, you cannot have a system that coordinates with the Bible that says that there were millions of years of death and destruction leading up to the event of man. Because when man was here, God said, I looked at all this creation and it's all very good. Well, that would mean that God is saying good to all those millions of years of bloody tooth and claws, Darwin said. So, we have a complete creation with people that is perfectly good, that is flawless, no sin, no death, no pain, no suffering, no evil. A beautiful creation. But everything changed when Adam and Eve made the decision to exercise their God-given free will to directly disobey him. Thus, introducing sin and its curse to his perfect creation. And we see that saddest of chapters in the Bible recorded for us in Genesis chapter 3. It was mankind who introduced sin and its curse to the world. And sin became an infection that has been passed down to every man and woman. Romans 5.12 tells us, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so there again we have that sequence that coordinates with the account of Genesis 1 and 2 and 3, that it was sin, the moral choice made by human beings that introduced death to the world. So there could not have been any death prior to human beings. This was the thing. This was the thing that introduced sin and death and suffering to the world. Is that this one man, Adam, made that choice. And so death was introduced through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. And we all know that we are born now with that sin nature. Even the most precious little baby. As soon as they're able to make any expressions of their own, you see selfishness there. You see selfishness embedded in the heart. As precious, as beautiful, as tender, as deserving of all the protection we can give them as they are, you still see selfishness and sin in the human heart because you know very well if you've had a child, you can feed, burp, change, cuddle, play with this baby, and all their needs are met. No temperature, no earaches, everything's perfectly fine with this child. You set them down and in their crib and you walk away out of the room and what happens? Ah! Oh no, what's wrong with my baby? You go back and you pick them up. Ah, smiles and giggles. That was selfishness saying, you must pay attention to me. You must do what I want you to do. I'm the most important person here. Right? Selfishness in the heart of the human being from the very beginning. So 
we are all born with sin, and this is what the Bible tells us. It's been passed down through us, be, to us because of this curse that's been introduced into this world and passed down through all of humanity. Now, there's a common objection, again, and, the, and this is related to the, to the first. Why not make humans just unable to sin? Why did God make that, put that option there? I mean, if God's all-knowing, then he surely would know all the trouble that this would introduce to the world, all the pain and suffering that this would bring. Well, God wanted volitional love. God wanted a genuine, meaningful relationship. The Scripture tells us in, at the end of chapter 1 of Genesis that he made mankind in his image. That means that there is a different depth, that there's a different consciousness, there's that moral free will in human beings that separates us from all the animals that were all created prior to the first man and woman. Now God said, this is a special creation. This, these are creatures that I want to fellowship with. And we see in those first chapters that it had been God's practice to come down and take on some sort of visible form and walk with them in the cool of the evening through the garden. He wanted personal fellowship with humans. He created a special for that reason. How special would it be if they were simply robotic? If they could not love him by choice? How special would that relationship be to you to have someone who was forced into a relationship with you who really had no choice. It happens. Sometimes love grows. But is that the beginning of a relationship that you want? Is that he would want to be? And it would have never happened. It would have never grown. Love would not have grown if God had never given people the moral free will, the choice to love and obey. Love offered freely by choice is volitional love. And real volitional love requires the option of a contrary choice. It requires that you could choose not to. It requires the ability to reject. Otherwise, there's no choice. It's not volitional. And so God created this opportunity by putting this tree there. Now, he was perfectly explicit about his expectations. Do not eat from this tree, or for the moment you eat of it, you will die. And that's exactly what happened. Morally, spiritually, they died Physically, their bodies began from that moment to decay. They would have lived on in those perfect bodies without end. But from that moment, decay began. And it entered the world, and death was introduced. And this curse came upon the whole of creation, not just the people. In Romans 8, verses 20 through 22, we see the Apostle Paul saying that creation is subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. I'm not reading the whole passage there. But you get that? It was subjected, all of creation, subjected to futility because it was subjected to it because of this decision that was made. At the end of verse 22, we know that the whole Creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. The whole creation is groaning. It's going through that. Now, I, I haven't been through childbirth, thank God. But I've been in the room for it three times, right there. I've witnessed it up close. What a turmoil. 
what wrenching of the muscles and, and stress on the body. So I think that's a, a graphic um, analogy that's used here by, by, by Paul to talk about the creation is grow, going through this, this, this wrenching experience. It just feels the, the angst and the, and the discomfort, the aching, the suffering of this curse of sin on it. And just waiting for that day that God will fix it. It'll make it like it once was, perfect and whole. So all of creation is cursed. And so we see that. And that explains... Between the two, we see the moral evil introduced to the world, and we see the natural evil that's introduced into the world. But now, just because God has not dealt finally with evil yet, does not mean that he will not. And, and so that's another thing that we have to keep in mind as we deal with the situation. God's letting all these things happen, and he doesn't change it. Well, he hasn't changed it yet. We are very finite creatures with a very limited perspective. Because he has not yet does not mean that he will not. In fact, Scripture tells us very, very clearly. Uh, you, you see in the book of Jude, and you see in, in Peter, you see in Revelation, you see in many parts of Scripture the description of what God is going to do and, and, the, and talking about the fact that he's being patient now. He's allowing these things now until the time is right. Keep in mind, his patience is an opportunity for people to be reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ. His patience in allowing the world to go on as it is, is keeping the door open to heaven. But when he does judge evil in this world, his judgment will be comprehensive. Who will be left standing? You know, it's easy for a person to stand by and, and say, well, why doesn't he put an end to the evil in the world? Well, guess what? There's evil in you, so what are you really asking for? If God brings judgment down now on all evil and you have not got the correct relationship with God that will bring forgiveness for the evil in you, then what you're really asking for is your own immediate destruction. So why does God allow this to continue? Perhaps for your sake, that you'll have that opportunity to enter into the relationship with him that will grant you forgiveness for the evil in you and give you eternal life and a relationship with him where you can be restored. Romans 3.23 tells us unequivocally, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every one of us falls short. Just as we just said, you know, even the baby has selfishness in their heart. No, that's not a horrible, horrible sin. That's not something that makes us recoil. But that's all it takes. We, we don't understand the holiness of God. When we dismiss various things as, well, that's not so bad. Well, a person like that shouldn't have to. You know, we excuse things so easily. I, I use this same illustration in the same conversation that I had this week. Uh, that I've used with many scripture classes. And it's maybe a little bit silly, but it helps perhaps adjust, adjust the, the viewpoint. The offense, the seriousness of an offense, we're talking about sin, we're talking about offense. It's seriousness, how truly important it is, 
is not determined by its relativity just between people and their other offenses. The determining factor, the standard is, who is offended? Really, in reality, that's the way it is. So, with the children, school children, I would say, now imagine you're in a hurry, it's time for, it's time for recess. You all kind of pile out the door, you know, you're very excited, and you're not always watching where you're going. And, and one, of your, one of your classmates walks by, just as you're piling out the door, you run into them, you knock them down on the ground, they skin their knee on the footpath, and there's some reconciliation that needs to be done there, right? I was careless, I'm sorry, are you okay? And then, and then it's pretty much done, that's it. Imagine while she was still with us, the Queen of England was visiting the school on the day. And the Queen of England was walking by that door. And the child comes bursting out of the door, plowing into the queen, knocking her down to the ground. She skins her knee on the footpath. Blood is flowing. There would be a different reaction to that. It would be a matter of international news. Horrible, careless child thrusts queen to the ground, causing her injury. Oh, my goodness. Right? It's who's offended. Right? Oh, that's a little bit silly. But we like to, we like to compare our, uh, our sin, our guilt, our faults to others because we feel we can justify ourselves that way. Right? And so uh, I used to live in Chicago. Right? We have these very, some very tall buildings in Chicago. I mean, nothing like Dubai and some of the other parts of the world. But, but, but there, once, upon, once upon a time, the Sears Tower in Chicago was the tallest building in the world. That was the case at the, at the time when I was living there. And so, uh, Pastor Erwin Lutzer, my pastor at Moody Memorial Church, one time used this illustration and said, when we compare ourselves to and our sins to one another, it, it's, it's from this ground-level perspective. He said, look at this magnificent edifice of this building that we're in here. It's a beautiful, magnificent building. But if you were to pull the Sears Tower up next to it, it suddenly shrinks in comparison at this towering skyscraper of the Sears Tower. And you might look at yourself and say, my, see, my, my sin is like this. These other people's sin is like that. I'm not a Hitler. I'm not a Pol Pot. I'm not a Stalin. I'm just a little bit angry sometimes. See, I'm not so bad. Pastor Luther said, but see, God's perspective is more like the satellite view from space. And there's no difference looking down on those two buildings. There's no difference between them. An offense against holy, entirely righteous God is an offense that deserves His wrath, no matter what we judge to be the size or the seriousness of the offense. It's who is offended. So here we are, found all guilty. All have sinned. All fall short of the glory of God, His standard of holiness. We all fall short of it. Romans 6.23, it becomes even more serious when he says, now the wages of sin, right, the consequences, what we deserve for it, the wages are what you feel you deserve after you work, right? You put time in or something. Well, this is the reward for sin. It's death. 
And here again, in the context, we can see clearly he's talking particularly about spiritual death, the separation from God for all of eternity. That death that was instantaneous for Adam and Eve when they first sinned. The wages of sin is death. But here's the beautiful contrast. I love that there's more to this verse. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's why the gospel is so necessary. The good news of Jesus' sacrifice is so necessary because the default state of every human being is standing in line of God's judgment, condemned already, as John 3, 18 tells us. Now, Hebrews 9, 27, it starts to get personal. It says, it is appointed for a man once to, to die once, and after that comes judgment. So something that else that's universal to us all, is not only our sin guilt, but what else is universal to us all, every one of us will die. The one caveat, the one exception will be those who are alive when Christ returns and takes people directly to heaven. But apart from that, until he returns, this is the course of everyone's life. It ends in death. It's inescapable. It doesn't matter how sophisticated we become in our security systems, how much time we spend in the gym, how carefully we guard our diet, no matter how advanced medicine is, no matter how sophisticated our, our hospitals are and emergency services and surgery, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We are fighting a losing battle. Sooner or later, we will lose. We will die. It is appointed for man to die. And after that, what happens? We face judgment. So, God allowing things to continue is an opportunity, it's an open door for people to change their eternal course. Matthew 25, verses 31 to 34 and verse 46, says, Now when the Son of Man comes in His glory, this is Jesus speaking of Himself in the third person, and the reason He does that is to identify Himself as the subject of Old Testament prophecies. The Son of Man is a, an expression relating to the Messiah in Old Testament prophecies, and so He's referring to Himself as the Son of Man, to identify himself as the Messiah, right? So when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. You want to be in that group. Because then on the others, to the others he says, verse 46, These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. You see, God is just. He will deal with evil. And we can't have it both ways. We can't look at that and say, how horrible of God to, to judge people and to, to sentence them to hell. How can that be? Well, you wanted him to deal with evil. 
he is a good and just judge, he will deal with evil according to its deserts. So which group will you be in is the more important question. You see, we can, we can waste all kinds of effort judging God. Say, well, if he was, you know, first of all, who are we to decide, who are we to be the arbiters of what makes a good God? If he's a good God, he wouldn't do this. If he's a good God, he would do this. Says who? Let God be God because he's God. He didn't ask any of our opinions. And I know that sounds rather harsh, but, but the reality is, it doesn't matter if I like what God does. But he has made a way. He's made it possible that we can stand in favor with him and be ushered, welcome in so graciously to say, enter my joy, enter my eternal home, enter paradise. You're my guest, you're my child. I embrace you, I love you, I'm glad that you're here. We can be there. He has made it possible at his own expense. So if people reject that, they have no right to accuse him of being cruel. 2 Peter 3, 7 through 9 says, The heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So this whole corrupt earth, this whole corrupt universe that was infected by the sin choice that was made by Adam and Eve is one day going to be cleansed by fire. The evil will be dealt with, but that will be a terrible day for those who are not on the right side of God's justice. It's being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is, a, is a, as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. Now this is so, this text is so abused that people to try to use the, an argument for, for theistic evolution or something like that. I'll see there. You know, just because it says day there, it doesn't necessarily mean God says, well, then if you're going to turn this into a formula, then you'd have to say that all of evolution took place in 6,000 years. I don't think that's plausible either. So it's not a formula. It's simply speaking to the reality that God stands, exists in eternity, and that time is really nothing to him. He sees the beginning and the end all at the same time and everything in between. So a thousand years a day, that's nothing for him. So we shouldn't judge God's patience, God's holding off of his judgment against the evil in this world as though, well, why is he taking so long? He has a different perspective. So... Do not overlook this fact that with him, time is viewed differently. Now, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. Again, it's the perspective from ground level. But he is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. There it is. It's the open door to repentance. God's Allowing more time to lapse is allowing people the opportunity to turn to Him. 
If you have not yet accepted the gift of salvation and forgiveness that God offers, believe me, you do not want him to deal with evil today. Because you will be included. If you are not covered by the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ that brings the justified status, just as if you'd never sinned status, your record written off, rubbed clean. God looks at you through the filter of the holiness of Jesus Christ and sees no problem when it comes to your entrance to heaven. So that's where you want to be. Well, so here are a few more. Here's just kind of some summary things to consider about all of that. First, just because we struggle to understand what what good reason God could possibly have to allow certain things to happen. It does not mean a good reason does not exist. It's the ground level perspective. Because we cannot understand it doesn't mean it isn't a reality. It only means that our understanding is limited. Isaiah 55 verses 8 and 9, God is speaking and says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, Neither are my ways, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, there, that perspective, once again, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. We cannot judge God and his actions on the basis of our extremely finite perspective. Secondly, Consider Paul's affliction and his request for deliverance that he wrote about in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 8 and 9. Paul had some affliction. There's been some speculation as to what it might have been. He does talk about his poor eyes at the end of, of one of his letters that he wrote, and so he had an amanuensis. He had a secretary who took dictation of the letter for him, and then he says, see here by the, by the writing that I'm signing this myself. You know, he was putting his... his Official approval, yes, this is my letter at the end, which apparently must have been you know, a notable scrawl because he had struggled with that. So some people have suggested it was that. We don't know exactly if that's what it was, but he refers to something that plagued him, something that was very difficult, something very practical that was difficult in his life that caused him suffering. And he says, he says three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he, God, said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So some of the things, and here I'm talking, I guess, more to the Christians, those who already have that relationship with God. Some of the things that we suffer, you know, there's been even, you know, books written on, you know, why bad things happen to good people and things like that. You, you might be thinking, well, what about a, what a Christian, someone who really who knows and loves God? Why do the bad things happen in their life? You would think they'd be protected. Both of my sisters, I have two older sisters, one younger brother. Both of my other sisters, older sisters, have had to bury a son through instantaneous, unexpected, horrible death. We do experience grief in this world. Being a Christian doesn't shield us because 
we still live in the same sin-cursed world. And God doesn't fix everything because that time is coming when He will, and it's not that time yet. So, we might say, how, how, why? Why does He allow this in this person's life? This person is, is precious. They're just the sweetest young woman. They're just, they're so loving and they love God. Why is she struggling with cancer? And it's, it's an honest grief. There, there, there's no way around it. It's painful. But you see, sometimes God has purposes that we don't see. And there are greater purposes. And remember, what is a long time suffering for us here and now doesn't compare to eternity. And, and sometimes God uses these difficulties in our lives to achieve something greater than we can possibly understand right now, either in us or through us for someone else, for someone else's benefit. And so that's why God says, my grace is sufficient for you. I will, I will give you what you need, in other words, to get through this. I'm not going to take you out of the trouble. I'm going to take you through the trouble. My grace will be enough for you. You just keep leaning on me. I'll get you through it. Because my power is made perfect in weakness. In other words, this is an opportunity for people to see me through what's going on in your life. God can do great things. And sometimes he does choose the miracle. Sometimes he does. But I think he rather likes it when there can be no other explanation for it. When only God can receive the glory because that calls people's attention to him, which could lead to their eternal salvation. So sometimes things have to get to their worst before God steps in with that even miraculous solution. We look at Paul's spiritual perspective as he, as he continues in his life and ministry. He talks again, he writes about his various earthly sufferings, and here he's talking about the beatings, the imprisonment, the false accusations, the true suffering that he's been through that none of us can really relate to. The flogging, the, the, the being trapped in irons, the, the years that he has spent in Syrian and Turkish and Roman prisons in the first century. Can you imagine? Okay? Not three square meals a day, not time out in the yard, not a nice weight room to go to, not movie night. All right? Syrian and Turkish and Roman dungeons in the first century, Paul spent years in them. He was beaten to within an inch of his life. He was stoned to the point that people thought he was dead. He was put in stocks and irons. If anybody suffered in this world, it was Paul. And that's besides whatever this other physical, physical affliction was that he apparently carried with him. And so he says in Romans 8, 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So God put his, all that weight of suffering in this world, of his own personal experience, he put it on the scale next to the eternal reward that he was anticipating. And he said, there's just no comparison. 
This is light. So it's, it's a light momentary affliction compared to the weight of the glory of what is waiting in heaven. If the Apostle Paul had not spent all those years, here's God working good through, you say, why would God let Paul do this? He was a faithful servant. He was taking the gospel to people all over the world. He made great sacrifices. Why would God allow him to suffer like that? But if the Apostle Paul had not spent those years in Syrian and Turkish and Roman prisons, we would not have the book of Ephesians or the book of Philippians, the book of Colossians, the book of 2 Timothy, the book of Philemon. So God did use that for many people's good. Consider Joseph's perspective. Back in the Old Testament, Joseph, Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, <coughs> excuse me, his, his father's passed away. He is the second most important person now in Egypt. He is extremely powerful. But you remember the story of how he got there, right? His brothers sold him as a slave to a foreign traveling band, sent him off to another country, led their father to believe that he had been killed by a wild animal, and let him go, figuring we'll never see him again. Now, is that evil? to sell your own sibling off into slavery, to allow your, your parent or parents to suffer such deep grief and to just allow the lie to be there, to continue for year after year, to watch that suffering in the parent and just do nothing. God used... Joseph's experience. God used Joseph to save so much of the world at that time from the famine that was to come. And to move all of his family to Egypt where they would be sheltered in a really strange way through slavery to grow and to multiply into a whole nation that could then return to the land that God had promised to Abraham that he would give to his descendants. Even that suffering had a purpose. So Joseph's brothers come to him after dad has passed away and they figure, well, now we're done for. Joseph was probably just holding back his his judgment on us while dad was alive. Now dad's gone. We're really in trouble. And they came fearfully shaking before little brother Joseph. And his response was, You meant evil against me, yes, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Now there's a perspective. There's that deep faith. Imagine those years of Joseph feeling abandoned and wondering if anybody had a right to go, why God? I was a good boy. I was doing what my father was telling me to do. And here he finds himself in a foreign land where people are speaking a foreign language around him, 
where if he didn't somehow manage to understand what they wanted, he was no doubt beaten, sold to be a slave in someone's house, demonstrates that he's trustworthy, elevated to a position of trust, then falsely accused, thrown into prison. Someone comes along who recognizes he's a good man and promises, I'll get you out, and then goes away and completely forgets for two years. For all this time, couldn't Joseph say, why God, this isn't just. This isn't fair. How can you be a good God and let this happen in my life? And yet, he came around to the other end of it and said, God meant it for good. God had a purpose. All those years. Well, often the good in painful or even horrible situations is not obvious. So this is where faith comes in. But sometimes the good might be any number of these things or other things that I haven't thought of. But just a few ideas to help us in our perspective, perhaps. What could possibly be the good in this? Sometimes the good is God drawing us closer to Himself. Again, His strength is made great in our weakness. When we recognize that we have to depend on Him, we are drawn to Him, and the relationship comes, becomes closer and more rich and more special. Sometimes the good in the suffering is our character being improved. All of a sudden, because of our suffering or the difficulties we're going through, some of the frivolous things, some of the distracting things, some of the bad things in our lives suddenly become unimportant. And all of a sudden, we focus on the more important things, the good things, because we must. We, need, we find ourselves really needing time in God's Word. We find ourselves really needing time on our knees in prayer. We find that we really have to focus on what has got eternal value because the temporal things around us just aren't right. And closely following that, sometimes the good in it is our faith being strengthened. Relying upon God, and then perhaps through one suffering, you see Him carry you through, and you see perhaps some of those good things that come of it. And you can say, oh, like Joseph, God meant that for good. And then your strength is greater. And then when the next trial comes along, you've got that, that much more confidence in God. And you can go, yeah, okay, this is bad, but I can trust God. Sometimes the good, frankly, is the revelation of Satan's true wickedness. Sometimes seeing the worst things in this world are confronting, awakening moments to realize that Satan is very much real, very much at work, and he is so desperately evil, so desperately vile, so unspeakably cruel. And you see that as those who are influenced by him do some of the things that they do. And that wakes us up to the eternal realities of this cosmic battle between God who will be the ultimate winner and this rebel who wants to wreak all the havoc and destruction that he possibly can in the meantime. And it should sober people up to realize 
we've got to make a choice. Whose side are we going to be on? Sometimes the good is simply revealing Satan's true nature, his true colors, his absolute wickedness. Sometimes the good is the testimony that our life can have of the real difference that God makes in a person's life. Sometimes it's the good is, is not something that you might experience. You might just suffer until you pass away into eternity where you will meet your great reward and you will be amply compensated as, as Paul said. So maybe you're not going to experience directly the good. But the good might be for someone else as they see that you endure this suffering, you endure this trial, you endure this heartache in a way that the other people around them don't. The way that they know in themselves they couldn't. And they see there's something different about you. I mean, if I had that happen to me, There's something different about you. How is it you can still smile? How is it that you aren't just raging and shouting and shaking your fist in the air? Why aren't you more angry? And that's your opportunity to say, well, it's because I have a joy that is deeper than my sadness. Because the relationship I have with God. Maybe it's the testimony to the real difference that God makes in a person's life when, when you demonstrate enduring faith in God through the deepest pain and suffering. Or when they see in you patience through protracted trials or illness or suffering. When they see in you grace toward those who cause them pain. When they see you react differently, even to that human source of your suffering. Maybe it's the testimony of the real difference that God makes in your life when they see you grieve great loss with hope rather than despair. When you lose that loved one who's so precious to you, your grief is real. There's no denying the pain of the loss. But when you have that relationship with God, when you have the Holy Spirit in your life, and you know perhaps that, that that loved one also had a relationship with God, then you know their eternal state is secure. You know that their suffering is over. You know that they're in heaven in glorious paradise waiting for you to be reunited. And so while you grieve the loss now, you grieve with hope because you know we'll see each other again. That makes a difference in the way that we grieve. My wife attended, back when we were working in, living and working in Chicago, my wife went to a co-worker's, uh, a, a co-worker had lost a family member and went to their funeral, and it was, um, it was a Hindu funeral. And she was just struck by the hopeless, desperate, despairing grief of all the people there the hopelessness of their grief, the wailing. We cry. We cry out loud 
We feel the pain when we lose someone that we love. But it's not hopeless. It's not despairing. There's a difference, and it looks different. So I guess the bottom line is, for us as Christians, ultimately we have to trust God. We have to trust His goodness, His power, and the fact that He will do what is best, that He does bring good out of suffering, but remember, He didn't create it. He didn't start it. He gave us the opportunity to make a choice. We made the choice for sin and suffering and death. And then in spite of that rebellion, he then made it possible at his own expense, at his own cost, for us to be reconciled to him out of this evil. That all we have to do, not pay some toll, not go to some purgatory for who knows how long to pay things off, to pay off our sins, but we can have instantaneous and eternal, durable forgiveness and be accepted as his child whom he loves and cares for today, even through the trials, and who one day will more than compensate for our suffering when we spend eternity with him in bliss. So we must trust him. There's a singer that I got to know uh, become familiar with. I did get to be in one of her uh, live concerts, but listen to her music back in the 90s. <laughs> back in those days when I was still living in Chicago. Her name is Babby Mason. I just love the testimony of her songs. They're so deep and meaningful. <laughs> I'm not, sorry, I might have a hard time with this one because <laughs> this has just brought tears to me many times as I've listened to this song through different stages and events in life. It's called Standing in the Gap. She says, I'm, you know, I'll be standing in the gap for you in prayer. But this is the line that gets me every time. It says, when you can't trace his hand, in other words, when you can't understand what it is he's doing, where you can't see God's good activity in the midst of something difficult, when you can't trace his hand, Trust his heart. When you can't trace his hand, trust his heart. He is the God who loves us so much. Though he didn't need to, we rebelled against him. But he loved us so deeply and in this great way that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for us. To make it possible that we can be reconciled to him in spite of our sins. So that we can enjoy once again and one day for all of eternity that fellowship, that loving relationship that he intended from the beginning that we should have. So rather than use the suffering and the evil in this world as an excuse to reject God, the proper response is to say, God, thank you that you have made a way that I can be lifted out of this one day. Thank you for making it possible that in spite of the fact that I'm part of this sin-cursed world, that I'm infected with the sin, that I offend you, still you have made it possible that I can be your child, that I can be adopted by you, that I can have all my sins forgiven, that I can spend eternity in paradise with you. 
That's the decision to make. Embrace God's grace and in confidence know that whatever the trials of this world are, they are temporary. There will be an end to it. And then there's eternal bliss beyond for those who know him. And unfortunately, it gets much worse for those who reject him. This is the reality that we need to focus on in this world. So while we see the suffering, we see the pain, we do not deny the evil of it. We don't make light of it. When we see what's happening to people in the Middle East, we see what's happening to people in the Ukraine. When we look back through even not that long ago history, we look at Cambodia and the killing fields. We look at the, the gas chambers of Nazi Germany. We, we look at the, the slaughter of, of people in, in Russia or under Stalin's rule. We don't even have to go very far back in history to just see a huge, horrific, bloody mess. And yet, we can look forward to a much greater, much longer eternity of a restored, perfect existence in fellowship with God and with those who also make that choice to accept Him. So there's the choice that lies before us. How we adjust really our perspective in these things is what makes all the difference in the world. Go with Paul, who says, no matter what the suffering in this world, it doesn't even compare to the glory that's ahead. Adopt the, the attitude of Joseph, who says, other people might mean these things for evil, who inflict these things upon me, but God means it for good. He's got a purpose, whether I can see it or not. And when you can't trace his hand, just trust his heart. Let's pray. Father, we, we lift up our world to you. We, we recognize the darkness, and really it is a proof of, your, of the truth of your word because you predicted that these things would happen, that, that wars would increase, that natural disasters would increase, that this world would just become a bubbling, boiling mess of turmoil and pain and suffering leading up to that time when you will correct it all, when you will deal ultimately with sin and evil and make all things new. So in this time, I pray, Father, that you would help us to have the right perspective, that we would see the urgency of sharing your grace and your forgiveness with others, that they might come to see you and to know you and to experience your forgiveness, that they can have the eternity of bliss rather than face your wrath. Help us when we go through our own personal trials, no matter how real, no matter how heavy, no matter how extremely difficult they might be. Help us to remember that you make all things turn to good for those who know you and love you and to live according to your purpose. And I pray that you would help us to lean into those truths when those times come. Help us to even grieve with hope, knowing that one day things will be made right, one day we'll experience joy. These things are temporary. We need sometimes our perspective adjusted, Father. Help us to endure. We do call upon your grace, just as, as Paul had to lean on that. We, uh, some of us even right now, 
just really desperately need that sufficient grace daily to help them through. Grant it in abundance, Lord. You've, asked, you've given us the opportunity to bring our needs to you, to cast our cares upon you, knowing that you care for us. And so, you know, we lift up Karen once again in the hospital this time. Uh, we, we lift up um, Fadanak as well, if I've said his name correctly, in the hospital right now. Um, we're just thankful that Mary is out of the hospital, but on the road to recovery. We pray for her. We pray for others who have just even recently, you know, experienced uh, medical scares, scares or difficulties or bad news that is very heavy for them. We have some among us who have been suffering for years and endure difficulty with the pains of this sin-cursed world on a daily basis and have been doing so for a long time. Father, we lift these up to you and pray that you would grant that sustaining grace, that you would give them comfort, that you would perhaps give them healing, and we would love to give you the the honor and the praise and the glory for any miracles that you choose to do. But I pray if that's not to be the will, that you would use these people to be beacons of your goodness when people see how differently they endure the trials. They can see the hope that is in us, the joy that is deeper than our sadness, that perspective of eternity before us that helps us to deal with these things. Father, help us to represent what is true to those around us, that they might turn to you as well. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.